Why is it so hard to make a living in the arts? Which is to say, are artists starving because they're bad business people? Or is something deeper going on? Something that, if only we understood it, would lay bare one of the fundamentals of our economy. Welcome to The Index, a podcast about economics, psychology, and the hidden business of everything from Rice University's Jones Graduate School of Business. I'm your host, Saul Elbein. And as you might have guessed, the answer is that second one. Here to give us the bad news is Peter Rodriguez, Texas native, dean of Rice Business, and professional bearer of bad news. When you hear art starting harvest, you say, it's not you. It's just an immutable law. You're always going to be poor and starving. I, it's nothing wrong with you or your business model. It's just is an impossible problem to solve. Let me comfort you. <laughs> That's the greatest comfort an economist can give you. With me in the studio, where we will soon be drowning our sorrows with a stiff jolt of Das Kapital, is fellow creative Tim Taliaferro, Texas Monthly's chief innovation officer and kazoo enthusiast. Tim put on his own duo live performance with Dean Peter Rodriguez at Texas Monthly's South by Southwest event, where Peter explained how the tough economics of live art are key to understanding the rising price of a lot of seemingly unrelated industries. That goes from teaching to medicine, and not to mention why New Yorkers might have been right to worry about Amazon. Tim, for a lot of bands and filmmakers, South by Southwest is where they hope they'll be noticed, where they'll make it on stage, and maybe some people will see them and they'll have a shot. How did it feel to find out that the arts are stuck in an economic black hole? Depressing. But it's not just the arts. The dynamics of live performance apply to a wide range of fields. Basically, what Dean Rodriguez was saying is that there are two economies, and one of them is, and always has been, leaving the other in the dust. A tale of two economies. I like it already. So this tale starts with one of Peter's professors at Princeton, Bill Bommel. He's an artist and an economist and a big supporter of the arts. And one day, these wealthy financiers and art patrons came to him looking for his help. You know, wealthy financiers and people who pay for arts organizations come to him and say, geez, man, these these opera companies, these stage shows, they always lose money. And we're happy to support them, but they lose so much money. What can you do to sort of up their game? And are they just lousy business people or or what? You know, do we need to clean them out and get some real hard-nosed, cost-conscious folks in there? And so so Bommel's a great economist. He goes in there and he studies them. He gets 100 years of data from the US and the UK on ballets, live shows, all the theater shows up to that point in New York that he could get, uh, live music, concertos. Uh, And he concludes, he has this great conclusion, he goes back to them, he says, look, I've I've studied all these data, and there's a couple things that stand out. Number one, ticket prices to all of these performances always rise at faster than inflation for 100 years in both countries, doesn't matter the venue, the size. Wait, always? Yeah, and we'll get to that. That's the bad news. The good news, which is also kind of bad news, is that the ballet and the orchestra And the people running those are not actually bad at business, which I think is what the presumption was. They're actually pretty decent business people. The bad news is that it is in the nature of these performances to always be not profitable. So the good news is (laughs) that they're they're actually decent people, but you're never going to make any money in these fields, so just give up. It's just the nature of live performance that makes it sort of completely impossible to survive over time. And so this is a great sort of dismal science story. It's like, oh, well, terrific. You know, we can do nothing and the world is terrible. And uh, things that we really love are always going to be costly and out of reach. So this is why the arts have always had patrons. I think Dean Rodriguez would say 
and always will. Okay, so let's walk back. Why is that? He said it comes down to technology. And I don't just mean like microprocessors. You might say that around the time of the Industrial Revolution gets underway, the economy starts to split. So I think the example I use is, uh, and I'll make it up. So if you think a, a, a Mozart concerto, right? He writes it 1789, right? It takes four musicians and 56 minutes to perform in 1789. It takes four musicians and 56 minutes to perform in 2019. And ever it so will be, right? You can't, in other words, there are no productivity increases by nature of the good itself in live performance. They're not about that, but you also can't make them better. You can't say, well, reduce your cost. Well, you can only have four people and it takes 56 minutes to perform the piece. That's the nature of the good itself. Yeah, one guy doing it in 30 minutes, you feel, you know, you ripped off. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, that's right. You can't do that or say, hey, play the notes faster. It's more you know, efficient. 18-minute sonata would be amazing or, yeah, one dude, four <laughs> things. You can't do that. But it's the same for other stuff, right? You can't say, hey, write faster, Tim. You know, we just need you to, well, you could say that probably. You could say, <laughs> write faster. No, or, no, oh. no. You can't say that. So what he's saying is there are basically two economies. In one of them, workers can be replaced by machines, which means productivity and savings. And on the other one, by virtue of the very nature of the good itself, they can't be. Yeah, and it turns out that the ones where they can't are ones in which it's either pretty tough to make a living, like arts or journalism, or the cost is going up way faster than inflation, like healthcare, or both, like education. So I kind of get that in principle, but what I don't get is the mechanism for why. It all comes down to inflation. You think about inflation and you imagine this basket of goods and it's the stuff we all care about. We buy food, we buy clothing, transportation, entertainment. Healthcare. Healthcare, shelter, magazines. And so we know that when inflation rises at 2.5% a year, which is the goal of most central banks or thereabouts, that some things are always rising faster than two, it's an average, so some things rise faster than two and a half and some things are slower. Well, it's always the same culprits at the top end, and that's the issue for 100 years, right? It's always going to be these live performance-like things. So anything that sort of intensively requires human effort, like one-on-one -on -one stuff or service at a white table restaurant or an education at an elite institution or the time it takes an artist to produce their craft, these things are destined to rise at faster than the rate. So what he's saying is those prices are always going to have to keep going up. Right, and he pointed out that Austin, like a lot of other art cities with burgeoning tech scenes, is really an interesting city to talk about this dynamic because art is only half the story. So what was the reaction then when your professor friend you know, reports back to these people who said, come on, fix this? What did they say when, when he, he delivered this? I mean, it was, it was a total buzzkill. I don't know. I mean, they were like, <laughs> we were hoping for more. Uh, and, and so essentially what he says is that, look, you know, so Austin's even a better city than you think for this example. So you have these two sides of the economy, right? So the tech-enabled side, right, where productivity is, is massive and year in and year out, these organizations can lower their costs because technology improves or because of Moore's law or they'll just become more efficient. Amazon is another great example. And so they can actually pay their employees a raise every year, call it a cost of living raise, three, four percent, but they don't have to raise their prices in order to generate more revenue to fund the raise. They just use their cost reductions to fund the raise. So every two years, transistor power and efficiency doubles, which means efficiency savings, 
which means actual savings, which they then can reinvest or use to pay raises. Right. Then people take those raises, and what do you know? They want to go to a show or put their kids in private school or buy a house in Austin, where most people don't have that same tech bump. And meanwhile, the human-centric live performance service businesses have no choice but to raise prices. Yes, he called it a wedge that forms between them. To me, that's very interesting because it means that prices are not about one industry and, and one analysis. It's this ecological point that prices and industries are always driven by the breadth of what's happening. So it's true. Google may not seem to have a lot of effect on the cost of tuition at UT or Rice, but it does. And it might not seem like Google has a direct effect on the price of uh, getting health care or watching a live performance or about the funding challenges of any uh, sort of great uh, institution that delivers arts, but it does. And I think that's the point. So if live music is on this end of the spectrum as strangely immovable, what is on the other end? Is it tech? Is that the most opposite? Yeah, so if you think about tech or, you know, I'll try to think one that's really uh, interesting. So if you look at an Amazon cost model, now for a lot of reasons, Amazon's costs have gone down. They're just this incredible, insatiable engine of commerce that swallows up everything around it. But there are a lot of economies of scale at Amazon. And at the same time, they've leveraged technology to make everything they do cheaper, from the roboticization of the logistics platform, to the scale, to the advertising, to the vertical uh, integration of their entire model. And so year in and year out, their costs per unit delivered have continued to go down for a quarter of a century. <laughs> it's, it's unthinkable. So if you imagine what fraction, and it's getting smaller in some ways, that uh, they're paying their workforce, it's actually, it, it's, it's no challenge for them to provide higher wages. And then they're competing for scarce goods, right? So there's this idea in economics of the positional good, a product or a service that's only valuable because everyone can't have it because supply is limited and zero sum, like houses that are near enough to downtown Austin to walk, or on Manhattan, or spots in an exclusive private school. And that means that for people in the arts who are competing for these goods without those benefits of raises from your technological productivity increases are kind of bringing a knife to a gunfight. Yeah, because think back to those musicians playing Mozart, or a ballet, or stand-up, or for that matter, a surgeon. Inflation goes up, cost of living goes up, and they have no choice but to pass that on to consumers. So he mentioned Amazon as, I think his phrase was, this insatiable engine of commerce, which just a couple months ago pulled out of its HQ2-ish, should we say, deal in New York City. And the people in that neighborhood got a lot of flack in the national press. People said they were killing jobs. But it sounds like he's saying maybe they had a point. Yeah, it would be like, imagine an auction where suddenly a whole bunch of high rollers show up. Everything gets more expensive. If you were Amazon, the biggest effect you would have seen would have been you'd have lots of high-income people suddenly wanting to bid for uh, spaces to live, places to live, places to buy food, and it would have driven up prices. Now, it would have been tolerable for all of them, but everybody on the margin, <laughs> everybody who's in a field where has really tight tolerances for their budget would be... I mean, gentrification would be the way. You'd be edged out in that way. And that's just the way that it's going to work. So therefore, if you're in the theater company or you're in the uh, arts, you're going to find it a little bit harder still to find those artists who are willing to sort of 
make it and stomach it or travel in. And, and you've got to find this talent that's willing to, to, to sort of live with those price increases, and that's just not easy. And so we're intimately tied in that way. And these productive, if you will, and sort of by nature, non-productive sides of the economy are, are split uh, ever in this way. It's a big challenge. So it sounds like that's part of the reason why artists tend to cluster in places where they can find ways to support each other and kind of hang on in the shadow of, and to some extent from the patronage of, this other economy. Which is good and bad, right? I mean, it's I guess good it's if good you're in Austin. Austin. Yeah, no, yeah. it's really good if you're here or in a large enough city that you have it, but everywhere else you see this thinning. Uh, this, it's less regional in a way and more urban and more concentrated, and that's, that's likely to be the case. I mean, we all know this. It's been true for a long time, but it's even more true <laughs> that uh, you go to New York for certain uh, arts and the, the density and the variety there is not only greater than it was before, but it's even greater relative to other cities and other venues than it was before. And so all this made me think about an article I read a couple weeks ago in the Sunday New York Times that made the point that human contact was becoming sort of a luxury good, that as we talked about in the last episode, for a lot of those of us below the 1% are having to deal with a life that's more and more lived in front of screens. One of the chilling examples that this article gave was of this telemedicine case. A hospital tried to get around the problem of few doctors, a lot of patients, increasing costs of service by squeezing a little more productivity out of a single doctor by having him consult patients through these little telemedicine consults, an iPad on a stand. And a doctor told a patient that he was dying basically over an iPad video. Can you imagine? It illustrates the occasional conflict you see between productivity and the prerogative to increase productivity and this idea of the human touch. So how do industries like live performance react? What, what can they do with this phenomenon? Well, well, ultimately, you've got sort of two choices. You, you can either find a way to get funded elsewhere, right? So you can just be a great fundraiser. Uh, but that's a, that's a bit of an arms race, and it's a competition that's challenging, and, and, and donors' um, generosity tends to, to, to run out at some point. Or you can try to use technology to increase or extend your productivities in ways that mimic extending your live performance. So you can have uh, live opera performances streamed from the Met, right? So you can have people sort of chime in and watch it. It's not exactly the same, but it can be kind of the same. Or another example would be what, what we do and what we see all around in education, because we see this in education all the time, which is you see the rise of online education or the use of technology to sort of amplify and extend a teacher or a professor's time and ability to broader and broader groups of people. It's not exactly the same experience, but to the extent that you can do that, you really are increasing their productivity. Now, especially in a, in a city like this, the aficionados and their right would say, it's not like being there, right? A live performance, you see Willie Nelson singing live. It's not like, it's not like on CD or it's not like uh, any other way, but you do uh, try to extend their, uh, their range that way. Or even physicians do this, right? So you have telemedicine or the use of AI in medicine. These are all ways to try to imitate or substitute as near as possible to the original in order to undo this immutable economics that says the actual performance itself is not going to change. I mean, in a sense, the whole movie theater business in the early 20th century got around this problem in the conventional theater. If you just record the play once, you can play it by machine all over the country with no added cost. So are there then some kind of hybrid models that are coming out? Yeah, one of my favorites is what Netflix is doing with comedy specials. It seems like a, a very sensible extension and obviously helps Netflix get subscribers. Is that a, a kind of 
example of breaking out of this paradigm? It is, and so if you can extend your brand or extend your reach and even get a marginal amount of support through some medium that is technologically wholly scalable, you're greatly advantaged, but it's also gonna differentiate you from the person that's only live, right? So if the person is only live or they can't get on that medium, uh, it's gonna be much more difficult for them and they'll be, they'll be squeezed out. You can use it in two ways, right? So I could say, I'm on Netflix now, so I'm earning more money and I can be more profitable. Ergo, my live performance doesn't have to be as exclusive or expensive as it was before, right? So I kind of box out the competition in a way. So I just wanna let that sink in. He's saying that you have two choices, that the online Netflix special lets you either price out the competition by raising your income enough that you can now drop your margins on the live show, or it can raise your profile enough that you can now command the inflated ticket prices that the new economy creates. Right, or both. Uh, and, you know, if you think about it, it's pretty different from how the music industry used to operate. It's funny, if you look at, at rock performances, right, it used to be they were completely the loss leader, right? Like you, you just wanted them in line, so they'd come and buy your tape or buy your disc or <laughs> whatever we're buying, did your bites. Uh, I bought tapes. Did you? Thank yeah. you. I felt yeah. really bad about you. using I, I that example for a moment. Yeah, yeah. tapes. Uh, cassettes, I was going to say. Yeah, cassettes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, but, uh, but now it's kind of the reverse, right? It was very hard to get paid on the medium or on the digitized version of your product, but now the live performances are, are priced much higher. And so and that's it's a good example of your point. It's made the live performance actually a profitable venue now. If you can get enough scale and you have both going, right? If I have a digital version of myself creating demand and a live version that makes my present special, now I've really got the, the model that works today. So I know that Texas Monthly has played around with some element of this. You were interviewing Peter at what amounts to an event, right? How does that play into the business model of journalism? We are absolutely trying to solve this same problem. You can't make journalism exponentially more productive. That's the central problem. One solution may be treating public goods like, well, public goods. Well, I think what we have to study, is, you know, the two things that matter most, I think, are education and healthcare policy, because if these economics are true, then you have to have alternative means. And for the arts, we've probably been satisfied at saying we can live without uh, government support in one way because we'll have private support or we'll just lean on uh, people of means to be able to provide more support. And that's probably worked in a large way, although one could argue that National Endowment for the Arts and others should be better funded so that you could spread uh, the arts more widely. But in education, you probably have to have more of a, of a deliberate model and a redistributive model to ensure that you're not uh, uh, staving off, you know, growth by being too parsimonious with the uh, provision of education. Hmm. So he's saying too little education funding and you're ultimately going to pay a price in growth because educated workers are just going to work better and uneducated workers don't. Yeah, and the thing is, online education is cheaper and he thinks it can actually be a check on those out-of-control costs. Well, it's kind of like it's kind of like higher education. Is more money better if you subsidize it more? Does that help it or hurt the phenomenon? So you can imagine a lot of schemes that you could come up with. I would say that so part of the rise we saw, particularly in public education, uh, was that states and Texas was a good example pulled away from uh, more aggressive funding than in the past, and this led to uh, universities to to have price rises in part. But they've also got to have pressure to control costs. And so if the cost is smaller and the results are about the same then those are productive models to explore and to provide not only at the university level, but maybe uh, in other places too. 
you got to be careful about that. But if the science shows it, then I think we ought to we ought to follow that up with more funding. So, Tim, you know what I want to ask now, right? I think so. And I think I already asked it. How about journalism? You know, this is near and dear to us. This is an industry that's grappling with this. It's it's not cheaper or easier to do a deep investigation story. How does journalism address this problem? So you have the same sort of challenge, and unfortunately, leads to some of the problems of you're going to have agglomeration, you're going to have more um, large-scale organizations own more journalists. It, it is the problem of you, you can't just write faster, you can't just think through a story and assemble it faster. You know, so there's this immutable problem in journalism itself. So you have to use all the models everyone uses now to extend through technology, more print, more advertising, but that's a, uh, that's a hard, hard game to win as well. And the problem with this for journalism, where there may be a public interest, like that of education or healthcare, is that you need variety in opinion and in, and in takes. Because if you have too few, it's not very democratic. I don't think you have a great dialogue. And I think that's a public problem. Uh, and it's a public good to have a great variety in, in that way. So I think that's part of the issue there. I think we also have to encourage people to, to value it more. <laughs> Uh, or, or to understand the value of it more, and, and that's a challenge too. Uh, which you have so much free content, but but I notice you, know, you get really short articles, they're a little bit thin. The analysis is fast. You even see AI writing things. It's more common in like sports write-ups, right? When you read that, that's just, a robot wrote this analysis of this game. It's creepy. Um, but but I think we have to to value that more in many ways, like the arts, like education, like healthcare. They're really precious. So we have to put more money into them and find ways to do that, either through the public interest or the private interest. So artists, take heart. It's not you. It's an ineluctable truth of the market. But for anyone, producer or consumer, supply is demand. For live one-to-one -one service where prices are going up, even at the risk of belaboring the obvious, let's say it anyway, here are some possible solutions. First and foremost, Saul, if you like the arts, you got to support them. There's mutual support for artists and other live performers when they band together, both formal and informal networks. Get a bunch of just scraping by artists in a place where rent is low and living is easy, and, well, you've just invented an Austin, or you've started to. Second, alternative distribution models, streaming and the like, can be a solution that can boost the power of live events, live performance or to create a second-tier good for people now priced out of these more expensive shows. And if you don't like how second-tier sounds, well, then take Dean Rodriguez's advice. There may be some very important aspects of our culture, starting with live performance, but continuing on to the education of our children or to doctor's visits, that are destined only to increase in price, meaning that either the workers are going to get squeezed out or the buyers will, and probably both. And so there are some places where, if what we're talking about turns out to be a public good, we might want to fund it like we do highways, the things that have to be accessible to make the rest of the economy run, and that won't get built on their own. On the next episode, we'll talk with the scholar of Scandal, Anastasia Zavyalova, who studies business ethics and reputation management and what happens when companies mess those things up. So when you ask, what do you think are the most uh, important assets for your company, um, the two biggest ones they would mention is people and reputation. Tim, I'll see you next time. Looking forward to it, Saul. The Index is a production of Rice Business in collaboration with Texas Monthly Studio. I'm Melissa Reese, executive producer. Our show is engineered and produced by Brian Standifer, who also wrote our theme music. Our moderators are Tim Taliaferro and Carlos Sanchez. The Index is written and hosted by Saul Elbine. 
For more business insights, visit business.rice.edu backslash wisdom.